Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives. And I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program is going to be going into monopoly versus competition, to organizing campuses across the American South, to inflation and more. And in the second half, we'll be interviewing America's number one progressive podcast host, Tom Hartman. So let's jump right in. Larry Summers, President Obama's Secretary of the Treasury, has jumped into the fray to give a speech telling us that monopolies aren't so bad because they can lower the cost of producing things. I couldn't quite believe my ears or my eyes watching this, since one of the stalest, oldest arguments in the history of capitalism is the argument between those who excoriate monopolies and celebrate competition versus those who do the opposite. I have long explained, as the literature does, that competition is how you get to monopoly. And what monopolies do is make so much money that they induce competition, and the system goes back and forth between them. It's long past time to claim that one or the other is the culprit. It doesn't really matter. Competition means you can't quite raise the price the way you would like to. But then you fight out over other ways. You become the monopolist who, when he or she or it is the only thing left, jacks up the prices and makes the big profits, which do what? Induce people to come in to compete to get those big profits. Competition provokes monopoly. Monopoly reprovokes competition back and forth. It gets particularly weird when you try to blame one or the other. For example, many today are blaming the inflation on monopolies. Uh, This is bizarre. We had monopolies five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. We've had monopoly for the last century in this economy, sometimes more, sometimes less. We didn't have inflation all that time. So clearly, there's no necessary relationship between them. You know what blaming monopoly is really about? Trying to distract people from what the real problem is, which is capitalism, whether it's competitive or it's monopolistic. They have their strengths and weaknesses. They have their achievements and their losses and their catastrophes. The system is the problem, not the particular competitive or monopolistic form of that particular system. My next update has to do with that horrific shooting of the school children in Texas a few weeks ago. And rather than adding my words, I would like to quote two of what I thought were the most powerful comments that came across my desk. The first comes from a humor magazine. The Onion, that I'm assuming many of you are familiar with here in the United States. The Onion headline covering the shooting of the school children in Texas went like this, quote, There is no way to prevent this, says the only nation where this regularly happens. Wow. Talk about capturing a lot in a few words. The second commentary that struck me as right on the target was offered by Golden State Warriors guard Damian Lee, 
who commented, and I quote, In this country, it's easier to get a gun than infant formula. Yes, that says it about a culture that produces and reproduces these unspeakable horrors. My next update has to do with an organization you may not have heard of, United Campus Workers. United Campus Workers. Across especially the American South, but now expanding into other parts of the United States, there is a real movement organizing unions of workers on campuses in this country. Campuses have been university and college campuses I'm talking about. They've been notably slow to organize unions, and it's long overdue. I want to read to you the banner headline or slogan of the United Campus Workers, and I quote, we are building the power to take higher education back from corporations and billionaires and put it in the hands of workers, students, and communities. Oh, how interesting. The democratization of the university. And I was particularly struck by the efforts of United Campus Workers now going on at Eastern Kentucky University. Eastern Kentucky has suffered, as have other universities in that state, from a long tradition of not funding education adequately, not creating the conditions students need to learn as much as they are capable of, and a long list of other failures when it comes to programs for people. And then on the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised. Let's see, let's review a little bit about Kentucky. It has two senators in the United States, Senate, as all states do. The two senators are named Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. That would be right-wing and more right-wing. Wow. In its state legislature, in the state Senate of Kentucky, there are 30 Republicans and eight Democrats. In the House of Representatives of the state government of Kentucky, there are 75 Republicans and 25 Democrats. This is a state that has long favored capitalism, private corporations, minimum government, or at least minimum when it comes to providing social programs. Workers in that state, therefore, particularly in the public sector, face bad pay, bad working conditions, and a bad educational system. There's no polite way to get around that reality. Kentucky's income and the growth of income have lacked that of the United States for the last 50 years. And yet, with such a record, they vote in the Republicans, don't you know? And it's epitomized by the offer of a wage increase made by the president of Eastern Kentucky University to the organizing workers there. Get ready. 
This is at a time when the prices of everything are going up by 8.5% minimum, and it's expected to be higher in the months ahead. And the president offers 2%, guaranteeing that an already underfunded, underpaid public education system will become more so in the years ahead if this president and this kind of state government get their way. Look, there's a movement to organize workers across this country, a powerful one, coming from below. Just this week, I read about the Starbucks workers in Birmingham, Alabama, voting to unionize their store there by a vote of 27 to 1. That vote is as important as the union effort itself. Things are changing, and it's happening across the country and to organizations like United Campus Workers, hats off. You are shaping not only a long-neglected economic system and educational system for the better, you're inspiring people around the country, and thank you for that. Here's an update about the inflation. Not that you all don't already know about it, but I wanted you to kind of get the feeling of it. Macy's, the department store, reports that expensive clothing has increased its sale by 12.4%, but they can barely give away low-end clothing. Walmart is losing shoppers and reports little details, but boy, do they tell you a lot. They're not able to sell gallons of milk the way they used to because people are buying more half gallons of milk. That's where they are in the United States. Ralph Lauren, a high-end brand, doing well. Kohl's and Ross stores, not at all. They can't sell branded. They only sell store name clothing. Costco and other big companies are holding the price, they report, of their rotisserie chickens because people come in to get those for their dinner meals. They dare not raise the price because then people will go elsewhere for their rotisserie chicken. So they hold the price, advertise that, and then jack up the price of everything else that people buy in the store once they've come for their rotisserie chicken. Wow. The last update I have time for in this first half is about Elon Musk, the billionaire. You know him. On Twitter, he wrote recently, and I quote, use of the word billionaire as a pejorative is morally wrong and dumb, D-U-M-B. That's from Elon Musk. Morally wrong to put a limit on how much wealth you can accumulate. I have no idea what morality he's talking about, other than it's obviously the morality of a billionaire, since it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But let's compare that to the morality we can see around us. Morality dictated that we have a minimum wage 
in the United States. The same morality would apply to having a maximum one, mightn't it? Wealth placed in one person's hand mean that it's denied to another person. The whole point of the critique of private property is that collective property can be shared. We can all enjoy the public park. We cannot if it's given to a private person. We have an inheritance tax in this country, sometimes called an estate tax. We've had it for many, many decades. You know why? Because we don't believe that you ought to give your children limitless amounts of money because then we're not all starting on an equal footing, are we? Then our efforts are not the same because it's not our skill or capacity that shapes our future. It's what we got from daddy and mommy. Wow. So the morality of an inheritance tax certainly makes the morality of criticizing a billionaire as a concept perfectly moral and consistent with the morality of our tax system. Indeed, we have a peculiarity of billionaires weaseling out of the taxes. We tax property in every American city and town, land, buildings, cars. We don't tax stocks and bonds, which is the property of the billionaires by and large. So yeah, billionaires have been weaseling out and calling efforts to change that morally wrong. Don't be fooled. We've come to the end of today's first part of the show. For those of you who may not know, Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, a small donor-funded nonprofit media organization celebrating 10 years of producing critical system analysis with a vision for a more equitable and democratic world. For example, the book Stuck Nation, Can the U.S. Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People by award-winning journalist Bob Henley. That's available with other content at our website democracyatwork.info. Please stay tuned as we will be joined by Tom Hartman, best-selling author of over 30 books, number one progressive talk show host in America for a decade. He's co-authored documentaries with Leonard DiCaprio, and his book, The Hours of Ancient Sunlight, is a widely used textbook. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am very proud to bring to our microphones and cameras Tom Hartman. He is really the backbone of progressive radio and progressive ongoing comment here in the United States. He's been that for a long time. Many of you are fans of the work he does. Those who aren't yet, I hope you will become I've learned an enormous amount uh, listening to him, reading what he's done. So before I get into it, thank you, Tom, for joining us today. It's a pleasure and honor, Richard. Thank you for having me on your program. Okay, thank you. All right, I'm going to jump right in. We've been hearing, and I know you have too, comments by people that think a civil war is somehow building up in this country or that we're getting close to one a way of understanding the divisions that are fairly obvious, but seeing them as heading towards a kind of 
cataclysm, which certainly the phrase civil war implies. So I want your opinion. You're watching these things more than anybody. Do you agree? Do you think this is happening? How do you respond to the talk of an impending civil war? I think what we're looking at, Richard, is is not so much a civil war as a civil insurrection. Ruth Ben-Ghiad, who is the you know the international expert on authoritarianism, has been arguing recently that one of the reasons the NRA and the Republican Party are so gung-ho to make sure that there's a, a zillion guns in America is that mass shootings and mass chaos create a fertile political environment for authoritarian politicians. That the goal is to turn the United States from a, a quasi-aristocratic democracy, uh, you know, we, we, we're sort of half democracy, half oligarchy right now, into a full-blown uh, authoritarian oligarchy. And uh, I think that's the, the direction. I don't think it's going to play out like the Civil War did in the 1860s. In the 1860s, by the 1840s, the South was no longer, uh, no longer even resembled a democracy, even for you know, white men who were the only people allowed to vote. Because of the invention of the cotton gin in the 1820s, throughout the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, about a thousand massive plantations across the South bought up all of their competitors, wiped them out because a cotton gin could do the work of 50 enslaved people, one machine, but they were very expensive. And that those economies of scale basically allowed that roughly thousand families to take over the entire South and run it not as a democracy, but as an absolute iron-fisted police state autocratic oligarchy. And that ethos of the South is what I think that we're seeing of the old South, of the old Confederacy, is what I think we are seeing reemerging right now. But I don't think it's going to be, you know, if it plays out the way that these guys want it to play out, I don't think it's going to necessarily play out specifically regionally like it did then, um, because then you had this very clear division of slave and not slave states by law. And that's not the case now. I think that what we're looking at now is an attempt by the Republican Party, their friends in the NRA and a large, a large number of large corporations and a number of right wing billionaires who have just come right out and said that they don't believe in democracy with help from foreign autocratic governments, including Russia, to basically end even the the, the feeble example of democracy that we've had here in the United States and hold up this new autocratic system that is sweeping the world. You know, it's uh, China, Russia, Hungary, uh, uh, the Philippines, um, Bolsonaro is trying to do it in Brazil. I mean, it's happening all over the world. They, they just want America to be the next domino to fall, in my opinion. But you don't think it's going to play out that way? I think it's entirely possible that it could. I think that if in the 2024 election we get a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump or another authoritarian fascist in the White House and Republicans are still enthralled to the to the fascists in the billionaire class and the corporate class and the international fascists like, you know, Hungary, where CPAC was just a, a month ago. Um, I think that it's entirely possible it could play out that way. Yeah, I'm hopeful it won't. And I think that, frankly, I'm encouraged by the strong national response to the shootings in Texas a while back and, and across the country and the anti-abortion activity of the Supreme Court. I think those two things are, are causing a whole lot of 
otherwise democratic voters who don't vote to have a come Jesus moment. The problem is as long as this fascist element remains so solidly in control of the Republican party, it ain't over. Tell me to jump to the other side. What do you think are the prospects for the forces represented by Bernie Sanders, AOC, and all of that, either as a counterweight to what you just said or as a phenomena of its own? I think, frankly, the progressive movement is is the best salvation for this country because, you know, the progressive movement right now is basically where Dwight Eisenhower was in the 1950s. I mean, it's, uh, you know, certainly Lyndon Johnson in the 60s. And and uh, it's, uh, you know, the idea that people should be able to go to college for free or that everybody should have access to inexpensive health care and we shouldn't have medical bankruptcies or that, you know, I mean, obviously the Vietnam War uh, screwed that up. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, so I, I, I think that the progressive movement I, I remember Franklin Roosevelt, you know, famously saying that if you're hungry, you're not free. If you're homeless, you're not free. If if you don't have a job that pays a decent salary, you're not free. And that redefinition of freedom, which I think is at the core of the of the Sanders progressive message, is finding a, a, a resonance with a large audience across the United States. I think that's a really, really healthy thing. And frankly, I think it's the only hope for this country. Okay, I want to shift gears again. You are well known, and we are doing that too, of taking advantage of the internet, the YouTube, all the new mechanisms. How do you assess your success, your ability to be part of the national conversation relative to the major mass media businesses that up until now monopolized what passes for news. In other words, is the possibility of the progressives moving forward, is that something you feel folks like you and me and others are in a position to materially assist in this this day and age? I do believe, Richard, that we are. And at the same time, acknowledge the barriers to that, the very, very real barriers to that. I sat in the office of a United States senator with a billionaire who owned um, close to 900 radio stations. And uh, the senator said, why don't you put a progressive station, a show on some of your stations? You've got hundreds of stations carrying right wing stuff all day, every day. And the guy said, I'll never put anybody on the air who wants to raise my taxes. I mean, that's kind of the mentality. I, I you know, I sat at lunch with a, uh, uh, I believe he was a vice president with another radio network, the Salem radio network years ago and said, you know, you've got a conservative lineup in every major city in America. Why not, you know, consider my show, for example. And and he said, uh, you know, we're a Bible publishing company. That's how we started out. And we only put Christian uh, voices on the air, um, failing to mention that two of his top hosts were Jewish. And, and I said, well, I'm a Christian. And he said, no, you can't be a liberal and a Christian or words to that effect. I mean, there the, people who think that the media is politically neutral in this country, or at least the management and ownership of the media in this country are politically neutral, are diluted. But these are very large corporations. In some cases, they're owned or run by people who are ideologically hard to the right. In other cases, they're simply you know, following the proscription that uh, corporations must put profits first, like Les Moonves, the head of CBS News, famously telling his investors uh, back in 2016, you know, Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but he sure is making a pile of money for CBS. Keep at it, Donald. 
I, you know, I operate under no illusions that, you know, tomorrow or next month or next year, you or I or any of any of our colleagues on the left in the media are suddenly going to have, you know, large platforms. But I think that our message to a large extent or pieces of our message are seeping through into the into the more mainstream media uh, platforms, whether they like it or not, simply as a consequence of the growing demand on the part of the people. You know, um, uh, Strauss and Howe in their book, The Fourth Turning, talked about how every 80 years there would be a, a major transformation in the United States and, and historically always has been. It was 80 years from the Revolutionary War till the Civil War. It was 80 years from the Civil War to World War II. It was 80 years from World War II to now. And, you know, they quoted Toynbee saying, you know, when the when the last man who remembers the horrors of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable, pointing out that every 80 years there was a crash followed by a war. Um, I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I think that what we're looking at, if that 80 year cycle is true, and it appears to be, um, I think it's more that we're looking at blocks of 40 year cycles. And, and, you know, I'd love to hear your analysis of this, Richard, um, either now or someday, you know, in my program. Um, that, you know, for 40 years, you get a group that is pushing the country farther and farther to the, to the right, kind of the John Adamses of the founding generation who didn't think the rabble should be, you know, property owners should be the only ones allowed to vote and, and all that kind of thing. And then you have a pushback against that for 40 years where it gets more progressive. Excuse me, I got it backwards. Uh, you got 40 years of progressivism and then a pushback for 40 years where the country gets more regressive and more conservative. And then it blows up the civil war and then it becomes more progressive for a while. And then it becomes more conservative and it blows up uh, World War II. Um, and then, you know, you, you, so I, I really think that what we're looking at now is the tail end of one of these 40 year conservative cycles. And we're about to shift into another 40 year progressive cycle. I'm, you know, I'm not completely wedded to that idea or notion, but I, I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. I also find it very hopeful and, and attractive. And it does, it is consistent with my own experience of, of doing this and discovering that my audience keeps growing and, and, you know, I'm not deluded. I know it isn't me. I know it is the realities of life that are bringing people to, to, to my audience, as I'm sure they bring, they come as well to yours. Let me push you in the little bit of time we have left. If you had to come up with a succinct two to three sentences, how would you account for what you've already referred to in this conversation? The last 40 year shift to the right. Why, other than the cycle idea, how would you explain that to, to, to a Martian who visited, to, to a person from another continent who came? How would you summarize what made that happen? Well, whether it was the, the rise of oligarchy in the old south in the in the 40 years preceding the civil war or you know whether it was the rise of the harding coolidge bunch in the 40 years that preceded the the great depression and world war ii or whether it's the 40 years that we're experiencing now where the supreme court in 1978 76 and 78 in the Bellotti and buckley decisions said that corporations are persons and money is free speech and, and legalized political bribery. What we've seen in each one of those cycles was the rise to power of great wealth. And what we're beginning to see now, which is exactly what we saw after the Civil War and is exactly what we saw after World War II, 
is the people demanding the government do something to reduce that great power of great wealth. All right, Tom. Look, I appreciate enormously your time as I do your insight. So I want all my audience to understand that this is a person whose work is really worth following. He thinks hard and he has a lot of courage to call it like he sees it. And boy, do we live in a time when we need it more than ever. So thank you again, Tom. And to all of you, thank you for listening and watching. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week.